2: The Leviathan Chronicles, season two. (laughs) The story thus far. Ascension has awoken Rebecca Von Alt, the immortal world's most powerful tracker, in order to find the location of the missing Suraxian aliens. He and Rebecca are ensconced in a safe house hidden deep within the New York City subway system, along with former Black Door agents Jason Sterling and Whit Roberts, as well as young Toshi Tanaka. Jeffrey Tully has just arrived in New York City and is desperately hunting for Toshi Tanaka and hopes to return him to his father, Yakuza gangster and Nankatsu CEO Kazunori Tanaka, who is holding Oberlin St. Clair hostage back in Japan. And thousands of miles away, Harlequin and his ward Lizette remain in Las Vegas recuperating from their injuries. Lizette has been told to infiltrate the DEFCON hacker convention in order to find a new accomplice that will help them defeat the deadly computer virus that is destroying Leviathan. McAllen Orsel and her Leviathan Strike Force are also heading to New York City. After Gregor Roginski was able to detect the sudden awakening of Rebecca Von Alt by Sension, the team was able to piece together their location and is rushing to get to New York before their trail gets cold. They hope that by finding the Black Door agents, they will be able to find the aliens and thus procure a Starstone to save Leviathan. And now, Chapter 37, Target Acquired. New York City, the Pierpont Morgan Library and Museum.
1: Mr. Lubutka, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to finally meet you. I mean, I know we've spoken on the phone and over email, but I still- I'm
3: very sorry I haven't had the chance to stop by. You know how much I care about the library's mission. In fact, I'm so impressed with the work that you've done with the latest Beatrice Potter exhibit. Oh,
1: thank you, Mr. Lubutka. You know, everybody remembers being read Peter Rabbit when they were a child. I'm just so glad we could finally meet in person. And you can see for yourself the kind of exhibits that your generous donations allow us to procure. But I have to ask, when was the last time you were here?
3: Sadly, some time ago. My schedule tends to be very erratic. No,
1: no, I completely understand. It's just, well... You've been one of the most generous patrons of our museum for decades. And I was hoping to get the chance to thank you for your support at one of our gala Unfortunately,
3: I'm a bit of a homebody and really don't get out very much in the evenings. Most of my nightlife consists of quiet nights at home playing backgammon and reading a good book. I'm not sure I'd be much fun at your parties. Now, about the pack Ascension
2: walked through the main atrium of the Pierpont Morgan Museum with its head of acquisitions. The well-dressed woman believed she was speaking with Mr. Christoph Leputka, a well-known, albeit reclusive, author and philanthropist. But Laputka was just one of the many false identities that Senshin adopted every few decades in order to interact with the mortal world. Laputka had rarely been photographed, and few knew what the man supposedly looked like. The museum director seemed as excited by the chance to actually meet the mysterious Laputka as she was to receive the latest gift from the museum's enigmatic patron.
1: Well, I, I can't thank you enough for your financial support, but this latest contribution is, well, well I'm speechless. We didn't know you were a collector as well. The handwritten letters between Charles Dickens and his mistress Ellen Ternan are are priceless. They'll make a stunning exhibition, and we're so excited to be the first to display them. Thank you so much for lending us your collection and allowing us to exhibit these these valuable artifacts. But I have to ask, how did these letters ever come into your possession? You
3: could say Charles Dickens and I had a mutual friend.
1: (laughs) I didn't know you had such a good sense of humor. Now I have to tell you, the only thing is that we won't be able to exhibit these works for at least another four months. We'll need the time to clear out our current collection and create the proper setting to appreciate these treasured letters. Are you sure you wouldn't feel more comfortable storing them in your own vault?
3: No. I mean, (laughs) no. I'm afraid if you'd like the opportunity to display the letters, you'll have to take possession of them now. You see, I'm leaving from Melbourne on a marine botany expedition, and I'll be gone for the next nine months. Now, I've had them delivered Yes, yes,
1: we received them earlier today. I saw the care you took in preserving the letters by storing them in that hermetically sealed container. I just want to assure you that we'll follow your instructions to not open the box until we're ready to begin the exhibition. But surely we can convince you to fly back for the opening. I mean, they're your letters, and I'd love to speak to you about how
3: Unfortunately, I'll be working in a remote portion of the Tasman Sea and won't be able to attend. Famed director Nobi Nakanishi will probably attend my place. He's far more verbose than I am, and a much better speaker, I promise. Now... Feel Many hours later,
2: after night had fallen over Manhattan, after all of the visiting guests had left the exhibitions of the Egyptian tablet seals or the Renaissance paintings of Rosso Fiorentino, after the museum employees had logged out of their computers and the gift shop had been closed and all doors to the library had been locked for the evening, a strange metallic box sat deep in the museum's vault where most of the archives and manuscripts were kept. The box had been carefully brought in by representatives from Christoph Leputka's personal estate and handed off to the Morgan Museum personnel, who conducted a basic security scan of the box. But the staff dutifully followed the acquisition director's order not to open the box under any circumstances. Given the late hour, the archive room and vault were empty and devoid of any human presence. At least, seemingly devoid.
4: Toshi,
5: this is Sterling. Do you
4: copy? I copy. I'm still inside the box. I think I'm in the vault room where you said they'd store the container. Toshi sat
2: inside a titanium-sealed climate-controlled container, inhaling and exhaling through a complex rebreather system that scrubbed his CO2 and replaced it with air he could readily breathe. The box was large enough that he could shift positions on the cushioned surface to stay comfortable, and Senshin had made sure to load several games as well as children's movies on the small LED screens that surrounded the interior of the box.
5: Check your external cameras. Make sure nobody is in the room
2: with you. Toshi tapped on one of the screens which then displayed a rotating 360-degree view of the vault room in which the container was being stored.
4: All clear. It looks like nobody else is in the room. Check
5: infrared.
4: I did. I said it was all clear.
2: Senshin turned to Whit Roberts and exchanged a small smile. Not out of affection for Whit, but by the small boy's unexpected resourcefulness and competence under pressure. He had leapt at the chance to participate in the infiltration of one of Manhattan's most prestigious museums. Good.
5: Now, you understand that there are cameras in the vault right now that can see you, or at least see your container. You're going to blind them using the magnetic pulse charge on the outside of the container. It will freeze all of the images from the cameras
4: and surveillance equipment within the
5: vault.
2: Got it. Ready to fly. fire. Fire. Senshin looked at the data pad he held, monitoring the systems in the high-tech container.
3: I'm showing full discharge. Tell him to release the hatch. Toshi,
5: you're going to exit the container now. Carefully, begin by releasing the hatch, but be sure to not let the top fall to the floor. Do you understand?
2: I understand. The top of the titanium container slid open with a hiss, and then slowly moved to the right leaving a gap just big enough for Toshi to pop out his head. Remember,
5: stay within the vault perimeter. That's your safe zone for now. The
2: vault itself didn't resemble a bank vault as much as it did the archives of a major metropolitan library. The Morgan Library specialized in artifacts of bibliographic significance, or the study Art of writing and bookcraft. The lower levels contained rows of top-mounted shelving that was affixed to metal tracks embedded in the ceiling that could be easily shifted and reconfigured. There was a redundant fire suppression system on the walls, but the only other security measure was an electronic keypad on the only door leading out of the vault section. I
4: see the exit door. Am I clear?
2: Senshin looked down at his datapad that he had used to tap into the museum's security system and saw that the titanium container still stood unopened in the middle of the room, indicating the camera. Had had indeed been frozen in time, showing the footage prior to Toshi activating the magnetic pulse. Vault
3: cameras are frozen. I'm checking outside.
2: Another swipe on Senshin's pad brought up a video feed of the hallway outside the vault. It showed a tired security guard walking away from the vault door.
5: Toshi, I want you to wait five seconds, then exit the container, and proceed to hack the door using the skeleton box like we talked about.
2: Got it. Toshi lifted himself out of the high-tech container and used a thin screwdriver to pry the numeric keypad off the wall, attaching the connecting wires to the gleaming jade box he held in his hand. The otherworldly green device pulsed rhythmically for 60 seconds before the door clicked open.
5: All right, Toshi. You've done a very good job so far, but it's time for your black dog training to really begin. We can see from thermal imaging that the guard around the corner is walking towards you. You need to get ready.
4: I know
2: what to do. The boy ran back to the titanium container and disconnected the rebreathing apparatus, which revealed two straps to be slung over the boy's shoulders. He then removed an oval mask that fit over his mouth and nose and connected its tubing to the rebreather mechanism. Lastly, he pulled out a tiny steel canister that was no larger than an average prescription pill bottle. I
4: have the mask on, and I'm showing my oxygen is good. I mean positive
3: good remember to keep your face mask and a rebreather on until we say otherwise the gas globes are very fast acting but the nerve agent can still linger in the vicinity for minutes after dispersion okay
4: I'm ready just tell me when to go
3: all
5: right Tershi take out the guard
2: Toshi opened the small pressurized canister and allowed a small yellow marble to roll into his hand.
5: The membrane will only stay intact for 10 seconds at normal pressure. You have to release the gas globe now. Toshi
2: carefully moved his body out of the doorway of the vault and centered himself in the hallway. He could hear the guard just steps away from rounding the corner and spotting him. Five seconds. Toshi knelt down and concentrated, tossing the small pocket of knockout gas like it was a tiny bowling ball. The gas globe bounced once and quickly rolled down the corridor, briefly coming to a halt in front of the patrolling security guard's feet. Bye-bye. The membrane surrounding the gas globe disintegrated in the ambient pressure of the hallway, releasing its potent blend of paralytic and somnolent gas. The guard stopped in his tracks and suddenly looked around as if confused by his surroundings. His vision clouded and for a moment he thought he saw a small boy wearing a strange mask walking towards him. An instant later he collapsed to his knees before dropping flat against the floor unconscious. The
5: guard is down. Repeat, the guard is down. Toshi, the coast is clear for you to proceed to the
4: surveillance room. On my way. I've
2: got this. Toshi exited the vault room and ran down the corridor, stopping only to stand briefly beside the motionless guard. The man's eyes were still slightly open and appeared completely vacant.
4: He's not dead, is he?
5: Whether he's dead or alive is not
3: relevant to the mission, Toshi. Now, you have to- God's sake, Sterling. Toshi, this Ascension. The guard isn't dead, but he won't be waking up for a while. Now, you need to keep moving forward down the hall. Now, when you enter the surveillance room, you're going to need to activate the skeleton box after plugging it into the control console. There's a USB port on the left of the console. You're going to plug the second skeleton box into that. Do you understand, Toshi?
4: Yes, we went over this a million times. You guys don't think I can do anything. You're just like,
2: Shit. Without warning, a door on the right side of the hallway opened, and a security guard exited while still buckling his pants.
3: There's a second guard. It's impossible. We've been monitoring the basement level for 45 minutes. How long could he have been in the bathroom? Maybe he had some of that spicy Bhutanese food we had a week ago.
5: Toshi only had one gas glue.
3: Toshi, this is Sension. Run. Do you hear me? You have to get out of there. No, not yet. What are you talking about? Listen to me, dammit. No.
4: If I run away, then the mission is over and we fail not going to let the
5: mission fail. No Toshi, no you're
2: not. The second security guard looked up from his belt buckle and to his amazement saw a six-year-old boy standing alone in the hallway. Hey,
5: hey kid, what the hell are you doing down here? You can't be down here.
2: Toshi stood motionless and stared unwaveringly at the man. Everything is all right, but you need to follow me now, quickly. The guard started to move urgently towards Toshi, who calmly turned and walked around the corner out of sight. The guard's footsteps came heavy and fast in pursuit, but stopped when he saw the boy standing over the unconscious body of the first guard. Ray? Holy shit! Ray, are you okay? What the hell happened? Hey, kid! KID! His knees began to buckle and instantly his legs turned to jelly. The room began to spin nauseously and before he could press the alert button on his walkie-talkie, the floor of the hallway seemed to rise out of nowhere and strike him violently in his head, rendering him as unconscious as his friend.
4: Are you sure the coast is clear now? Yes, Toshi.
3: The coast is clear. You shouldn't encounter any more guards surveillance room quickly and get the rest of the security cameras offline. It's at the end of the hall on the right. Hurry.
2: Toshi entered the surveillance room where the two guards would have been stationed, had they still been conscious. Eight monitors displayed close-circuit footage of different areas of the museum and library, two floors above. The console had several phones, keyboards, and switches that controlled the motion detectors, and security equipment that protected the priceless artifacts of the institution. Just as Senshin told Toshi, there was a USB port at the far left side of the
4: console. I'm in the surveillance room. I'm plugging in the second skeleton box.
2: The second box was a bit of a misnomer, being the shape of a small egg and the size of a bar of soap. It was constructed of the same green crystal as the first skeleton box, with sides that were perfectly smooth, causing it to wobble a bit on the console. The rough connection of the cord to the egg seemed at odds with the innate elegance of the device. But Senshin had patiently explained to Toshi that sometimes merging immortal technology with 21st century computers meant hardwiring some imperfect solutions. Within moments, a few Flashes of light sparkled within the device before all of the monitors in the room flickered for a moment and then froze.
5: Toshi, this is Sterling again. We're showing the skeleton box has interfaced with the security system protocol and is nullifying the backup feed.
4: Why are we doing this? The two guards are sleeping. Nobody will see me. Because the security company that
5: the museum pays for also gets to see the camera feeds in their headquarters in Connecticut. The device you installed has frozen all the cameras in time so that no one will see us when we come in. Now, we need to do one last test to make sure that all the systems are actually frozen. You're going to walk out into the main atrium of the museum by yourself. If our plan is correct, the camera feed should still show that the atrium is empty.
4: What if the plan isn't working? What if they can see me?
5: Then we're gonna see how fast you can run away from a precinct of New York City cops chasing you.
2: Toshi stopped and stood still, closing his eyes tightly. I don't like it when you're mean.
5: I'm only joking. I won't let that happen to you. You're too... (laughs) important. Just stick to the plan,
2: boy. Toshi opened his eyes and walked to the end of the hallway where the glass elevator was located and rode it up to the main floor. The gleaming elevator door opened and Toshi held his breath for a moment, feeling a twinge in his stomach that he had yet to feel the entire evening. He bravely stepped out of the elevator and into the bright lights of the entrance hall of the Morgan Museum. Can
4: you see me? Am
2: I showing up on the camera? (laughs) No. No, you're not. The camera feed
5: shows that the museum is still empty. You did it, Toshi! Goddamn, you did it, boy!
4: Yeah!
3: Toshi, this is Ascension. Well done. I'm gonna have you open the front door for us now. I think it's time our little group got a private tour of the Morgan Library.
5: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine
3: Ascension,
4: the outside of this place is
1: so... so familiar. I know.
3: It's like coming home again. They did some work on the entranceway, but the building's bones are still the same. My
1: god, it hasn't changed a bit!
3: The entrance hall is still made of the original facade from the building's construction in 1906, but they built something more modern in the middle of the museum area before we enter the formal library. Come on, I'll show you.
2: The Five slowly walked into the main central hall of the museum where Toshi had stood earlier. Rebecca briefly considered what a motley crew they must resemble to someone seeing them from the outside. With Senshin tall and lean, Sterling wide and cruelly muscular, with skin stained darkly red, and Tiny Toshi quickly running to take two steps for every one that the group took, Whip still limped slightly from his injuries sustained while escaping Mount Sheng I hope you're right about them, Senshin.
3: Which way do we go? This way, to the library.
2: The group walked across the marble and glass-filled atrium known as Gilbert Court, which was not a room per se, but rather an enclosed space between several adjacent buildings that the museum library owned. Some of the buildings were the original living quarters and library of famed industrialist Pierpont Morgan, the forebearer of J.P. Morgan, that he utilized at the turn of the 20th century. The translucent atrium soared upwards more than three stories, and thin wisps of gauzy clouds that stretched over Manhattan could be seen from its floor. I don't like this.
5: It feels too exposed. (laughs)
2: feel better where we're heading. At the end of the atrium to the right was a narrow set of stairs beside a sign that read Mr. Morgan's Library and Study. The group walked up the stairs and suddenly found themselves in a room that could not have been more different than the one they had just left. The Baroque Personal Library of Pierpont Morgan was a masterpiece of Edwardian woodworking and a glorified temple to the study of bibliography. Soaring bookshelves constructed of bronze and inlaid polished walnut covered three sides of the room, with multiple balconies reaching three floors in height, before terminating in an elaborate gold-leaf crown molding and intricate mosaic ceiling tiles. Several glass display cases stood on the sides of the room, exhibiting antiquated German Bibles from the pre-Gutenberg era. Directly in front of the team was the one wall that did not have exquisite bookcases running floor to ceiling, but instead, a gargantuan fireplace stood framed by a thick marble mantle that glistened as if constructed from deep-sea pearls. Sension walked to the middle of the room and turned slowly, looking up at the higher balconies containing countless rows of priceless leather-bound books.
5: Let me guess. We pull on the copy of a Jules Verne novel and the secret passage opens up. You immortals design your
3: lives like a goddamn Scooby-Doo cartoon.
2: Sension stared at Sterling.
3: It bothers you that we're more connected to the history of this country than you'll ever be. It offends you, doesn't it? Oh,
5: I can assure you that I think in terms of a much bigger picture, Sension. We'll see.
2: Sension walked up the recessed staircase to reach the third floor landing of the library. He couldn't help but smile when he spied Toshi mischievously climbing up the antique bookshelves like Spider-Man. He seemed to be actually enjoying himself despite being in the custody of a psychotic megalomaniac. Senshin carefully examined the bookshelves, hunting, searching for the one book in particular that he needed.
3: There you are.
2: Senshin opened the bronze case to access the scores of dusty, aged books. He gently pulled out a scratched leather-bound book with gold lettering and blue inlay that simply had the word Fables engraved on its spine. He opened it and turned to page 74.
3: The snake, slightly hissing, said, there can henceforth be no peace between us. For whenever I see you, I shall remember the loss of my tail. And whenever you see me, you'll be thinking of the death of your son.
2: Sension paused and looked down at Witten Jason, who again appeared confused as he carefully ripped out the page he had just read. He walked briskly back down to the recessed staircase to rejoin the rest of the main floor of the library. Just
3: what exactly are you doing? You could say I'm just warming the place up.
2: Sension pushed past Sterling and placed the ripped piece of paper in the massive fireplace. He knelt down and removed a small lighter from his pocket to set the torn page ablaze. Wit and Jason both furrowed their brows as the expected yellow flame failed to materialize. Instead, a sudden shower of green sparks erupted from the page and a thick plume of red smoke wafted upwards and became completely absorbed by the massive Istrian stone mantle that covered the fireplace. Soon, the entire mantle glowed a hot red before fading back to a light gray stone. Across the room, one of the bookshelves shifted slightly and revealed the silhouette of a narrow doorway.
3: Yes. I have to admit, that's, uh, some pretty powerful smoke. Instead of using an alphanumeric code, the security system guarding the inner chamber utilizes a chemical code, a specific compound contained within the smoke and vapor that was released from that page. Only designated pages and designated books contain the reagent. When the code has been entered, it opens up one of the doors to Mr. Morgan's private vault that we helped him construct a few years after this building was completed. Pierpont Morgan was an immortal? No. No, he wasn't. He was actually one of the few mortals who rejected the offer when Evangeline gave him the chance to join Leviathan. He thought her idea of a society without currency was foolhardy and would rob its citizens of their basic motivations. He thought it would bring out the worst in man, sloth, laziness, aimlessness. So he rejected Evangeline's offer but countered with his own. He knew she would need someone on the surface to help procure raw materials for Leviathan as well as help her invest her fortune in the growing new world. As one of the leading industrialists and financiers in America, he promised to keep the secret of Leviathan safe as well as help the immortal population gain influence within the shaping of America's public policy. In exchange he was richly compensated in both cash and currency as well as leaked technology that helped him multiply his own fortune. Son of a bitch. And like any good banker he offered Leviathan a special safe deposit box to keep its immortal artifacts safe on the surface. And now we're about to walk into it.
2: The room fell silent, and Toshi, who had now climbed halfway to the second-story landing of the bookshelves, looked over his shoulder to see why everybody had stopped talking. He hopped down and surprisingly grabbed Jason Sterling by the hand. Come on, it's this way. Senshin turned to Rebecca. Hmm,
3: <laughs> I guess we follow the boy. Come on away. The
2: five of them walked through the narrow doorway that had revealed itself. Inside the antechamber, a heavy brass door stood straight ahead that was surrounded with narrow pipes. The door was built directly into the substantial support beams to the building's frame. Sterling scratched the side of his neck anxiously. It's
5: it's too warm in here. Where is that moisture coming from?
4: It's steam. The early elevators in New York were powered by steam. Why? He doesn't like water. Oh, and why is that?
5: Because I don't like water it
2: hurts him over here Sension swung the brass door open and pulled back the protective gate to allow everyone inside the steam-driven elevator to ride down dozens of stories to the bedrock of manhattan as they descended the air grew precipitously cooler and jason sterling seemed to be less on edge When the elevator finally came to a stop, they exited into a chamber that resembled the abandoned train station, but was more primitive in its design. Yellow light flickered from the iron gas lamps that hung from the walls, and a giant faded mural of the Hudson River filled the ceiling. The room was littered with large wooden crates, small shipping pallets, and metal storage boxes. At the far end of the room, some of the containers were open, and beside them stood unfamiliar machinery that glistened in the half-light of the room.
3: Wit, there's a doll on your left that should brighten the room.
2: With the room illuminated, Wit now gained a better view of the machinery at the far end. Most of the machines were roughly the size and shape of school desks, with a single seating area featuring a flat, glimmering surface laid out before it. Much of it was constructed of a dull silver material with organic rounded curves. The various apparatus sprang to life as Sension and Rebecca walked past the different devices, each emitting a low hum as holographic controls erupted from the flat surfaces. One device in particular did not contain its own seating, but rather sat upon a weathered oak desk with a leather blotter and gold inlay around its perimeter. The silver machine resembled the shape of a football, but was over three times the size. On each end was a rounded handle. Rebecca approached the machine warily.
3: You can do this, Rebecca.
1: I know I can. I'm just worried about what it is we're going to find at the end of this rainbow ascension. We shouldn't be teaming up with these people.
3: I have a feeling we won't be teamed up for long. Are you ready?
2: I'm ready. Rebecca sat down, reached for the control handles on each side and closed her eyes. The instant that her skin made contact with the cold metal, the machine sprang to life pulsing with an eerie blue light from deep within it, and resonating at a frequency so low that every person in the room could feel it in their bones. Her head dropped loosely from her shoulders and began to slowly sway back and forth. And soon, the motions of Rebecca's body and the humming of the machine appeared to be synchronized.
3: What the hell is that thing? We think it's a tracking device, or more appropriately, part of a tracking device, or some sort of remote telemetry for controlling something far away. Either way, it connects the user's mind and projects their thoughts outward. In Rebecca's case, the amplification boosts her tracking ability tenfold. and allows her to scan a far greater area. We don't know exactly why. I don't understand. How can you not know? Didn't you build it? No, we didn't. You see, when we rebelled from Leviathan, we assumed that we were never coming back.
5: Pretty safe assumption but what does that have to do with the device?
3: The point is that we needed to take whatever we could to survive on the surface in perpetuity. Our departure from Leviathan happened earlier than planned. We didn't have time to cherry pick our Christmas list. We loaded up on whatever we could and escaped.
5: I don't understand.
3: Imagine you saw your house burning down. If you only had two minutes to grab whatever you needed, you wouldn't be very discriminate. We took whatever we could get our hands on, any immortal technology, any crates, any cargo vessel we could commandeer. We took whatever wasn't bolted down and we had time to grab, even if we didn't know what it was. You ransacked your home. But the result is that we ended up with a lot of immortal technology that we would have lost otherwise. It's clear that some of the devices were intended to be weaponized. We stored them here where we could study them further and use them later. Senshin, look at Rebecca.
2: Rebecca's mind entered the otherworldly trance, where she could see the starlight of all the other immortals in her vicinity and beyond. The countless points of light were small and blue, but Rebecca steeled herself to look further, stretching her consciousness and searching into the pitch darkness that lay beyond. She was looking for the sapphire glow that she had witnessed in her earlier trance. But now, she could feel the power of the device she held in her hand, and her thoughts contained a power and velocity that astonished her. Her brain was now energized, moving hundreds of miles per second, scanning the surface of the entire Earth. Suddenly, the blackness behind the blue points of light shimmered in one direction almost imperceptibly but Rebecca's consciousness was now so elevated that she could lock onto the glow. The place where the blackness that surrounded her faded into a dark blue, and like a bloodhound following ascent, she pushed further, stretching to find the source of the glow. Soon, the entire space that Rebecca now floated in was dominated by the powerful azure haze that filled her vision. The glow grew stronger, and finally Rebecca could see two powerful sources of blinding blue light, tightly orbiting each other frantically. She floated nearer, noting their location, and noting exactly how they related to the other points of light that now felt so distant. It's them. It's the aliens. The strongest energy in this space. There's two of them. Just like Sterling said. The two orbiting spheres that were venting fountains of blue light slowed their mutual dance and ground to a halt, suddenly shifting all of their light, all of their energy back at Rebecca. The result was painful, blinding and catastrophic. wave upon wave of heat and light pounded into Rebecca. The psychic attack left her mind reeling and spinning painfully, like someone driving a long needle through her frontal lobe. The space around her shattered, throwing her violently back into the vault, deep within the Morgan Library. The tracking amplifier in her hand vibrated at an increasing frequency. More of the blue light poured out of the silver machine, pulsing frantically, building, until finally, A scalding burst of heat and psychic energy shot through the room, throwing everyone to the floor and leaving their minds searing with pain. The blast shattered some of the wooden crates closest to Rebecca and sent all the scattered items on the floor flying towards the elevator. The entire building felt like it had shifted slightly, but further away, in the surveillance room several flights up, The effect of the explosion was much more nuanced. The skeleton box that Toshi had connected to the USB port on the console rattled ever so slightly, wobbling on its oval edge, eventually slipping over the side of the desk it was stationed on. Dangling over the side, it was suspended solely by the flimsy USB cord that was still connected to the main server. The cord strained against the jerry-rigged connection to the gleaming green skeleton box, and finally snapped allowing the emerald egg to fall to the floor, its rhythmic pulsing now having ceased. At the same time, in a six-story office building 40 miles away in Stamford, Connecticut, was a room with over 200 video monitors with security technicians watching each one. Michael Ambrose was on his third cup of coffee during his graveyard shift and was looking forward to watching one of the episodes of Law & Order stored on his DVR when he got home at 6am. Each of the four video screens he was assigned to monitor rotated through different institutions and corporate clients scattered throughout the eastern seaboard. The computer program that controlled the feeds maintained an instruction set to automatically display any location that indicated an alarm or disruption had been triggered. His screens flickered and gave off a burst of static before revealing two guards from his company lying unconscious in a museum hallway and a lockpick door wide open to the museum's secure vault. Motion detectors were triggered in the center glass atrium leading to all major exhibits and he could see a small smoldering ash pile in the fireplace of a library filled with antique books. He immediately knocked over his cup of coffee reaching for the phone beside his desk to notify his supervisor. There was a major problem in New York. Jeffrey Tully was stuck without an umbrella. He walked down the damp streets of Hell's Kitchen, turning left on 50th Street, heading slowly towards the Hudson River. The rain had grown from a light mist to a heavy drizzle, creating brown puddles in the uneven sidewalk. Tully's cold, wet hair stuck to his face, but his hands stayed burrowed in his warm pockets as his mind raced urgently.
6: Rick Roberts said he needed to rendezvous with Jason Sterling at the station. What kind of station? Bus station. Train station. Toshi's gotta be there with them, wherever they are.
2: Yeah, man. Can you help me
6: out, brother? You got a dollar, some spare change or something? Anything, man.
2: Come on, help me out. Since Katsunori Tanaka had given Tully $30,000 in Okinawa, Tully couldn't remember the last time he had access to so much money, let alone walking around with several thousand dollars in cash on his person. He looked at the homeless man hunched against a parked car and put $20 into the torn paper cup in the man's hand. Hey, hey, let me ask you something. You know anything about a,
6: a station around here? Station, huh? Oh, man, I don't know. Let me see. Let me, let me google it in my brain for a second. Nah. Nah, I got nothing, man. I'm sorry. But hey, 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 brother. Let me ask you something.
2: You got a dollar some spare change? Tully continued to walk further on in the rain.
6: Forty hours is how long Oberlin has left. Hours. Not days. Hours! Fuck, I gotta make something happen. Where the fuck is the goddamn station? Where in all of New York City could Jason Sterling be right
2: now? Tully stopped on the corner of 7th Avenue and 50th Street and let the chilled rain soak into his skin. He looked up at the Barclays building, flashing the day's closing financial indices, and realized that he still didn't understand the difference between a stock and a bond. In fact, the tall, gleaming building felt like a fortress of exclusion and privilege, a doorway to a legitimacy that Tully would never be a part of. Always kept outside, in the rain. He glanced down 7th Avenue and could still see a bit of the flashing lights in Times Square. The billboard for the latest vampire movie was illuminated, and throngs of tourists were exiting Broadway shows. Tully wanted desperately to be one of them.
6: They don't know anything about immortals, about Leviathan, plots against the earth, or kidnapping and gangsters. They can just go to the movies, go to Chili's, have a fajita, and then go home, and, and not have to work.
2: He looked at all the other buildings that surrounded him, with countless floors and countless lights and countless places for a villain to hide.
6: Sterling could Could be anywhere. I'm sorry, Oberlin. I'm so sorry, buddy.
2: Holy shit, what the hell is going on? Tully looked up again at the Barclays building, at the news ticker that wrapped around the facade of the building. It read, Breaking
6: news. Team of cat burglars trapped in botched robbery of Morgan Museum in Midtown Manhattan. Police standoff ensuing. What the hell? Who the hell robs a museum anymore? Wait a second. I'm pretty close to midtown.
2: Another pack of police cars screamed down 7th Avenue, including an armored truck emblazoned with the logo for the Emergency Services Unit, the SWAT division of the New York City Police Force. No, it couldn't
6: be. Just for a break-in?
2: Taxi! Taxi! A yellow cab screeched to a halt, almost running over Tully's foot.
6: Where to, Buggy? Fast. Go straight ahead. Just, just follow those police cars. We're late for a break-in.
2: Back at the Morgan Library, Rebecca lay on the floor near the desk, decimated from the surge of energy that had erupted from the tracking device. Senshin was immediately by her side, helping her back to her feet.
1: I, I found them,
4: Senshin. I found them. The aliens? I know where they are. They're angry, Senshin. They have so much hate for the Immortals.
3: Where? Where are the aliens, Rebecca?
1: Senshin. We need to go to Africa.
2: listening to the leviathan chronicles the leviathan chronicles was written and created by christoph Lepupka, produced by robin shaw produced and musical composition by luke allen directed by nobi nakanishi for a full list of cast and crew or to purchase the ad-free director's cut go to leviathanchronicles.com thank you for supporting us and thank you for listening To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production